The case is submitted. We'll hear argument next in number 89-1541, Roderick DeArmond versus Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. You may proceed, Mr. Sloan. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case concerns the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970. In that act, Congress established a comprehensive regime for occupational safety and health. Congress gave the Secretary of Labor the authority to set occupational safety and health standards through issuing regulations, and it gave the Secretary the authority to administer the program through a variety of means, including inspecting businesses and issuing citations for violations of the statute or regulations. At the same time, Congress created the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. Its sole function is to hear challenges to the citations. The Commission's decisions, in turn, are reviewable in the Courts of Appeals. The question in this case is whether, when the Secretary and the Commission disagree about the meaning of the Secretary's regulations, deference should be given to the Secretary or to the Commission. We believe that deference should be given to the Secretary because Congress gave the Secretary the authority to make policy through issuing regulations and administering the program, and the ability to provide reasonable interpretations of those regulations is an aspect of that policymaking authority. Mr. Sloan, does that same principle apply to the Commission itself when it decides uh, issues? Does it have to defer to the Secretary's interpretation? Yes, it does, Justice O'Connor. So the error that was made here, in your view, was made at the Commission level by its failure to, def to defer to the Secretary's position? Well, we, 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 that's correct. We believe that the Commission failed to give proper deference to the Secretary's position. For the reviewing court, we believe that the question should be the same as for the Commission, which is whether the Secretary's interpretation was reasonable. And so, therefore, the, the reviewing court should just address that question directly, uh, considering carefully the Commission's opinion and the light that it can shed on that issue, but uh, basically facing the same question that the, that the Commission was facing. I'm um, curious here. There is a um, regulation that appears to be more clearly in point for this particular violation, and that was G4I. And the Secretary uh, or the Department never amended its complaint to refer to that regulation. It chose to rely instead on the training regulation for the violation. Why was that? The reason for that was that the, the regulation that was relied on was perfectly appropriate. The particular provision is a training uh, provision, but it has a fitting component. It specifically refers to respirators being fitted properly. And it's, it's, it's important... Well, when you rely on the training regulation, it's perhaps ambiguous or you have to stretch to see how it applies. But if reliance had been placed on the other regulation, it would seem rather clear, wouldn't it? Well, the, in terms of some of the objections that have been raised to it, those objections okay. would not be present. But let, let me address the separate fit provision in its context. Yeah, uh, I just — it, it seems the, the present interpretation would appear to make it duplicative. Well — You don't even uh, need G4I, I guess, in light of the Secretary's reading of the training regulation. 
part of the reason I might say that I share Justice O'Connor's concern as to why an amendment wasn't made or why you didn't rely on the other provision. There are two reasons. One has to do with G4I and one has to do with G3, which is what incorporates the general respirator provision of Section 134. Taking G4I first, what remains of that provision is a vestige of the original provision. It was initially, as promulgated by the Secretary, an entirely different provision. The sentence that is there now, which has the language fitted properly, which is the same phrase that is in Section 134, fitted properly, that initially was followed by a specific quantitative fit requirement, which is very different from the qualitative fit test, which is at issue in this case, the banana oil test, where an employee puts on a respirator and is asked if he can detect the smell of the banana oil. That's a qualitative fit test. A quantitative fit test actually measures on a quantitative basis the exposure that the respirator is allowing. Initially, G4I included a quantitative fit provision. The fitted properly sentence was the first sentence, and it then went on to the quantitative fit provision. The quantitative fit requirement was invalidated in the course of litigation within the year and a half previously to this inspection here, which was in August 1979. That had been invalidated in 1978. Now, the first sentence of G4I, ultimately when the Secretary corrected the regulation, kept the first sentence, but it was a very different provision from the one that had initially been there. And so that's in terms of the context on G4I. That may be interesting background, but it doesn't answer the question, because the shorter version was in effect, was it not? At the time, that's correct. At the time. Why wasn't it used or cited? And that gets to the second question, the second part of the question. The second part of the question has to do with G3, Section 134, and its scope. There are many circumstances in which Section 134, the general provision that's incorporated by G3, applies, and there is no separate fit provision as in G4I. It applies of its own force in many circumstances, and it applies sometimes when it's incorporated in another regulation without a sentence as is now in G4I. In those circumstances, the Secretary has consistently interpreted Section 134 to impose a fit requirement. And if the conclusion that Section 134 does not impose a fit requirement because of the existence of this separate fit provision in G4I would strip the regulation of an essential part of its meaning in the Secretary's view in those other contexts, even though the predicate for doing so, the separate fit provision, is not there. And the reason that I'm going into this background is to say that Section 134, which is incorporated, has a broad applicability, and this is the standard way that it has been interpreted. It has been interpreted to include that fitting component. And the reason I went into the background in G4I is that although the shorter version remained in effect, it had been primarily viewed as the quantitative fit requirement. And it had been viewed that G3, which incorporated Section 134, imposed, among other things, a requirement that as the regulation state, the employee have an opportunity to have the respirator fitted properly, that they have an opportunity to have the respirator 
in a, in a test atmosphere. And so it was a perfectly valid interpretation. There was no reason to think that it was only covered by G4I. And in fact, that would be inconsistent with the way Section 134 had been interpreted in a, ri- in a wide variety of other contexts. Mr. Sloan, where in your brief or in the petition are, are these various sections set out? The regulations, Justice? The, what what you've just been talking to in response to Justice O'Connor and Justice Blackman's question. Okay. Um, Section 134 is at page 115, I'm sorry, section 134, E5, is at page 115A of the petition, of the appendix to the petition. 1029G, both 3 and 4, is on page 122A. In G4I, what is left is one sentence. There was initially uh, another sentence which imposed the quantitative fit requirement, which has been deleted from the current regulation and is not reproduced here. So what is here is the vestige that remained after the invalidation of the earlier provision, uh, after the invalidation of the quantitative fit requirement. Is one of the regulations that the Secretary relied on is not reproduced? No, Chief Justice Rehnquist, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that one of the regulations that has been discussed in the opinions initially had a different form than it is here. Uh, in terms of its a- applicability and in terms of its current state, it is in the form that it was reproduced on page 122A. So this is the current regulation, and this is the regulation uh, that was effective at the, at the time of the inspection. as a, as a clerical matter, the second sentence wasn't deleted until somewhat later, but this is what was in, in effect at the time. I should point out that these questions about the reasonableness of the Secretary's interpretation are precisely what the Court of Appeals did not find it necessary to address, because in the Court of Appeals' view, it was sufficient to defer to the Commission's interpretation. In the Court of Appeals' view, in cases of conflict between the Secretary and the Commission, if it determines that the regulation is ambiguous, it defers to the Commission if it finds that the Commission's view is reasonable. So the Court found that the regulation was ambiguous, found that the Commission's interpretation was reasonable, and never explicitly addressed the reasonableness or not of the Secretary's interpretation. That is exactly the question that we think should have been addressed by the Court and was not. Are you, therefore, Mr. Sloan, asking us to send the case back so the Court can address that question, or are you asking us to decide it? We think that it would be appropriate to send the case back uh, to address the reasonableness after clarifying the threshold question, which has divided the Courts of Appeals, which is whether deference should be given to the Secretary uh, or to the Commission. And we think because the Court of Appeals did not address the question, it would be appropriate to send it back to consider it in the first instance. Would you agree that if one just reads E5 that the Secretary's position is unreasonable? No, I, I would not uh, agree with that, because E5 includes the language uh, that the employee must have an opportunity to have the respirator fitted properly. And, this, and it also includes the language about a test atmosphere. And uh, what the Secretary said is that this imposes two requirements. It imposes a requirement that the employee be exposed uh, in a test atmosphere and secondly, that if the test results show that, that the respirator does not fit, the employer must do something about it, must give the employee a respirator that does fit. That's the meaning of fitted properly. Now, what the Commission said in its view it was that the 
regulation required only the first of those. It does require the employer to put the employee in a test atmosphere, but it then leaves the employer entirely free to ignore the test results and to send the worker back into the work environment with, with a respirator after getting uh, results indicating that the respirator does not fit. And in this particular case, there not only is the language of the regulation, but there's the fact that respondent had actual notice that this was the Secretary's interpretation, as is stated in the Commission's decision and in the Administrative Law Judge's decision. The Secretary's compliance officer explained to the respondent that the respirators had to be fitted uh, with banana oil or another kind of test atmosphere. And respondent revealed this understanding in its own training films by saying to its workers that it, if a test indicated that its respirators did not fit properly, it would be provided, uh, the employees would be provided with a respirator that did fit. It, despite this actual notice, respondent uh, was not doing this. The, sec- the secretary's compliance officer discovered on this inspection. Mr. Sloan, you spoke of the question of relative differences between the secretary and OSHA as being the threshold question. Why isn't the threshold question uh, the one which Justice Stevens uh, began to pose, and that is uh, whether the secretary's interpretation can be accepted by us as reasonable in the first place? Because if it isn't, I don't see how we get to the question of relative difference. Well, we uh, agree that that should be the primary, uh, that that should be the first question that the Court looks at, and that was a, a serious error in the Court of Appeals decision. Now, it would be our view that if a court determines that the Secretary's interpretation is reasonable, then it should be upheld. Uh, and uh, I suppose there could be a view that if the Secretary's interpretation was reasonable, that then raised other questions of deference. Uh, but that, that is exactly the question that we think the Court should address and that it, and that it But that isn't the question you've, in your, you've presented in your petition for certiorari. In your, in your petition no. for certiorari, you present the question of uh, should the secretary's view receive deference rather than that of the uh, uh, OSHA? That's, that's correct, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist. What I was, was trying to say in my response to Justice Souter is that we believe that a proper analysis uh, of the issue would be to recognize, first, that the secretary is entitled to deference, which means that the secretary's reasonable interpretations should be upheld. And so, therefore, the first question that the Court of Appeals should address is, is the secretary's uh, interpretation oh, reasonable? You're talking about what the Court of Appeals should address rather than what we should address. That's right. I didn't understand that. That's right, Chief Well, uh, I, I, I suppose part of, your, part of the question you presented is uh, whether the secretary's uh, position is reasonable. Because you don't defer to something that's unreasonable. You, you don't defer to something that's unreasonable. I agree with that. And uh, respondent has, has urged this court to, uh, uh, to hold that the secretary's interpretation is unreasonable. And if the court... Uh, you may th- I suppose you would think we would be unreasonable if we said that the secretary's position is unreasonable. But <laughs> nevertheless, what if we thought that? I don't know why we should uh, get mixed up with the questions of deference then. Well... In terms of the question, it, it is related to the question of deference, uh, Your Honor, because if, in fact, the Commission should receive deference in its reasonable interpretations, then, as the Court of Appeals did, there's no reason to consider the reasonableness of the Secretary's interpretation. There's an important legal question at stake here, which has splintered the Courts of Appeals, which is what are they supposed to do? How are they supposed to approach the issue when the Secretary and the Commission disagree? And it, 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 it's our view 
that the Secretary's reasonable interpretation should receive deference. And once that principle of law is clarified... Let's see, you think the issue here is just whether there should be a deference or not, and the Court of Appeals uh, didn't think that was entitled to any deference, so it didn't reach the reasonableness. Of the Secretary's interpretation. Yes, exactly. That's right. Exactly. So we don't need to, we don't need, technically, we don't need to get mixed up into the reasonableness issue. Well... I, I think that's correct. The court does not have to get mixed up in the reasonableness issue if it clarifies the general legal principle that has divided the courts of appeal. Mr. Sloan, I don't, I don't know why you, I thought you conceded earlier that, that the preliminary issue is whether this was a reasonable interpretation of the secretary or not. It seems to me neither of those two questions is logically prior. We don't have to consider whether deference is due if it's unreasonable. But just as equal, equally, we don't have to consider whether it's unreasonable if no deference is due. I don't know how one can identify either of those two questions as the prior one. There, you, you, you don't have to reach the other if you answer the the, the, the other one a certain way. The, the reason why I, I think that the that the threshold question should be which entity receives deference, uh, and I didn't mean to say anything contrary to that. I did but the, the reason I thought you did. All right. Uh, but the, the reason why I think that the uh, identity of the entity that should receive deference is the threshold question is because that is the legal rule that then structures the court's uh, analysis in its case-by-case consideration of these cases. And that's exactly the issue that has generated the conclusion. Oh, it's the more important question. Not that's right. Doubt. Well, in, in whatever might be logically prior in some sort of theoretical analysis, one question is presented by this petition for certiorari, and that's who gets deference. That, that's correct, Chief Justice Rehnquist. Yes, but it's presented on the assumption that there is some ambiguity that needs uh, justifies deferring to somebody. If the language were absolutely clear, one way or the other, we certainly wouldn't be arguing about deference, would we? Well, it is the the question presented arises from the judgment of the court of appeal. They assumed that there was ambiguity, and therefore right. they decided which one do you have to defer to. And you've presented the case on the assumption there's ambiguity. So in other words, you've assumed, you've gone past oh. the hurdle that Justice Souter raised, but if, if we're starting from scratch, you're, you're the first reviewing court, and it looks absolutely clear to you, you're not going to worry about deference, are you? If, there, if there's no ambiguity, there's no question of deference presented. And I think that's a, a very important point in focusing on what the issue in this case is and what exactly is at stake, because we completely agree with Respondent that the Secretary's interpretation should be set aside if it is inconsistent with the plain meaning of the regulation or with the plain language of the regulation. And we also completely agree with Respondent that the Secretary's interpretation should be set aside if it is unreasonable. The only category of cases that is affected uh, by the issue in this case is the category of cases in which the Secretary's interpretation is reasonable and would be found to be so by the reviewing court. And in those circumstances, we believe that the Secretary's reasonable interpretation should be upheld. Mr. Sloan, may I ask you one other question? Do you take the position that the same degree of deference is owed to the Secretary if her position is taken only in a compliance order or in the litigation itself, rather than in some other form, uh, to wit, a consistent interpretation or one adopted by rule or that sort of thing? We, that issue would bear on the, on the reasonableness of the interpretation. Um, the, in, in answer to your question, whether if it is only in a, uh, a compliance uh, order, it should receive deference, 
we would say that it should receive deference, but that there should be a full consideration of the reasonableness of the interpretation, and to the extent that there would be a prior history of such interpretations, uh, then it would strengthen the case uh, for the reasonableness. It seems that... Well, suppose it just comes to the Commission to decide, and all they have is that particular compliance order. Do they have to bow down and defer every single time because the Secretary has issued a compliance order? Well, they... So the Commission has to defer and the Court subsequently has to defer. How do they apply their analysis when that's all you have? When, when that's all you have, which is the hardest question, I should point out that this issue encompasses a great many other kinds of interpretations by the Secretary which aren't as hard as that hardest case. But in that hardest case, uh, what the Commission and the Court should do is to see whether uh, the interpretation that is reflected uh, in the, that interpretation, I'm sorry, whether the interpretation that is reflected in that citation is reasonable. Now, you have certain questions in those circumstances that you don't have if the Secretary has previously given some clarifying uh, interpretation, even though not in a regulation. For one thing, the question... Why, why is that? It, why isn't the issuance of a, of a citation? Is it the official act of the Secretary or not? Is it? It, it is the official act. Is it, a, is it a governmental act? Yes, it is. An official? Then, then, then why? And why does it get stronger? Why, why would an unreasonable interpretation, you say, only become more reasonable if there have been a large number of, of citation orders? I mean, it's either reasonable or it's unreasonable. 10,000 repetitions makes it truth? Well, I, 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 that. I agree that, that it should be upheld if it's reasonable, and that's why my answer to Justice O'Connor on, on this question was that, yes, it should, it should get deference. In terms of comparing that action to other interpretations, the reason why I'm saying that it might bear unreasonableness uh, is, for, is for two reasons. One reason is that it relates to the question of notice. If the interpretation is only in the enforcement action, you'd want to be very careful that, about notice. Now, normally, reasonableness would encompass notice to the extent that it's a reasonable interpretation. You would think that an employer would fairly have notice of it. But uh, because if, it, if, it, if that is the only place it's appearing... I think a reasonable interpretation gives notice. But I don't think that when you give somebody notice, you have thereby achieved a reasonable interpretation. I mean, if I give you notice of an unreasonable interpretation, it doesn't become more reasonable by the fact that I gave you notice of it. I, I mean, I, I, I hereby advise you I'm going to interpret black to mean white. That doesn't make that interpretation reasonable. I agree with that. And if that interpretation was issued three weeks before a citation, then, and, and then you had a citation reflecting that interpretation, then the only question would be the reasonableness of the black means white. But you wouldn't have a question about notice. In the case where it's only in a citation, you have exactly the same reasonableness inquiry, but you have an additional question, which you don't have in the other case, which is a question of notice, which you would want to be careful about. And in terms of notice, it's important, and the role of the commission, in terms of what it's supposed to do in that circumstance, it's important to point out that in addition to the adjudication of the challenge itself, a very important role that the commission plays and that it gets deference on is the establishment of the penalty and of the category of violation. In terms of the penalty, the, uh, there are four factors that the commission can consider in uh, determining the appropriate penalty and in some cases in, in eliminating the penalty altogether. And those are the size of the business, the gravity of the violation, the good faith of the employer, and the previous history of violations of the employer. 
Uh, and on those kinds of uh, factual discretionary determinations, the Commission uh, gets sub- substantial deference, and it is the Commission rather than the Secretary that is entitled to deference on those questions. And so even if you have a situation where an employer has received notice through a reasonable interpretation, but somehow still was in good faith, then in those circumstances, the Commission can still exercise its important role of uh, adjudication by uh, taking that subjective good faith into account in the assessment of penalties. Are, are those statutory factors? Yes, they are. I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Sloan. Mr. Fawn? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, what this case is about is a direct attack by the Secretary of Labor on the Occupational Safety and Health Act and the Administrative Procedure Act. The Secretary seeks to overturn a compromise reached by Congress when it considered this legislation more than 20 years ago. And she seeks to upset a system of checks and balances that has been in place since that time. And considering the alternative bills before it in 1970, members of Congress expressed strong concerns that placing all the administrative power in one agency head the Secretary of the Labor would not gain the acceptance of the regulated community that was necessary to achieve the objectives of the Act. To resolve these concerns, Congress reached a compromise. And that compromise was to remove the adjudicatory authority from the Secretary and place it in an independent agency, the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. The Review Commission was given the express authority to carry out the adjudicatory functions under the Act. The Secretary's position today is that the Commission has no policymaking authority in its role as the adjudicator. The Secretary, in a sense, her position would rip the heart out of the adjudicatory authority that has been given to the Commission and would render the Commission nothing more than a rubber stamp. Mr. Fort, I suppose Congress could have uh, just not provided for administrative adjudication at all. It could have been just a direct enforcement statute where if the Secretary wanted to enforce the statute, the Secretary would have to go to, to an Article III court. Uh, that, that is not... There are a lot of uh, statutes where you don't have an administrative agency adjudicating. You, the enforcer just has to go to court. And if, if that had been the case, uh, I suppose an Article III court would have been faced with the same question. Do we have to con- defer to the Secretary or not? Or should we just make our own completely independent judgment about what the statute means or what the regulation means? That is not correct, Justice White. What? what? What Congress created was an independent administrative agency. I know that, but let's assume for the moment that they had put it in a court, an Article III court. What would be the rule an Article III court would have to follow with respect to the meaning of a sec- the Secretary's regulation? The, the Article III court would look at the with Chevron and apply the analysis under Chevron as to whether it gives way to the court. Do you think the, the do, you, do you think the um, you, you think OSHA? Uh, the, the commission uh, doesn't have to follow Chevron, is that it? Your Honor, Chevron is a judicial... A court would have to, but the commission doesn't. The, the commission would not follow Chevron per se, if I may explain. Chevron is a judicial rule, so it does not directly apply to the commission. The commission would, if the secretary promulgated an unambiguous standard under its rulemaking authority, then as the commission agreed in its amicus brief, the commission would be bound by that rule. However, if the rule is, in, is ambiguous, as it is in this case, that is exactly the function that Congress wanted this commission to carry out. 
And it's particularly important in the occupational safety and health area. Mr. Fought, maybe that's true, but, but it's certainly not true because Congress wanted to create an independent, as you've, as you've described it, uh, an independent adjudicative agency. I mean, the, the, the supreme example of, a, of an independent adjudicative agency is an Article III court. And all the government is, is, is arguing for here is to apply the same rule to this adjudicative agency as Article III courts apply. So it has to be something more than just adjudicative power that you're arguing for here. As this Court has held in a, a long series of cases, beginning with SEC versus Chenery, Justice Scalia, is that an administrative agency in adjudicatory power also has the power to make policy. That is the exact kind of thing that Congress wanted to create in the Commission here. Because in the occupational safety and health area, it applies to many industries. It has a very broad spectrum, and it applies to many aspects of those injuries, those industries. And therefore, the adjudicatory function is important that based on facts of helping to develop this policy, of in effect developing a common law. And that's where the Commission's role is very important in the occupational safety and health. You think that OSHA can, can develop uh, regulations uh, through its adjudication the way that Labor Board can, for example? You know, Labor Board doesn't, it doesn't issue regulations normally. They just make up new rules in adjudication. Can OSHA do that? They cannot make up rules in terms of rulemaking power, which is given to the Secretary, no. but they can make up principles of law. And, in fact, they have. That, that, that impose new substantive obligations that are not, uh, that are not imposed by the Secretary's regulations? They, they can — the Commission can act in a number of ways. It can, one, it can fill uh, Can you answer that? Just answer that one, yes or no, and then, then go on and give me the other ways. Can, can it enact — impose substantive requirements upon individuals that are not imposed by the Secretary's regulations? Yes, it can. It can. Yes, it can. And it has. Such as? Such as the Commission has interpreted what is a repeated violation under the Act. The Act provides that an employer may be fined up to $10,000 for a repeated violation. The Act, however, does not define what is a repeated violation. The Commission has developed the principles of law in defining what... That's not a new substantive rule. That's just interpreting what the statute says. It can interpret what the statute says. It can interpret what the regs say. But can it, can it make policy in the sense of imposing new obligations upon people, the, the way an agency can do by adjudication? It cannot make policy in the sense of establishing substantive standards, which is the power of the Secretary under its rulemaking authority. But under the judicatory authority, it does include some inherent policymaking. And inherent in that policymaking is precisely the, the question the Court has before today, is you have an ambiguous standard. And in that inherent adjudicatory power that includes some policy, the Commission can decide that question. It can interpret what that standard means. And that's precisely what it's done in this case. Well, now, if there were no Commission and the question went to an Article Three Court, the same question we have here, would the Article Three Court defer to the Secretary's interpretation of an ambiguous regulation? On the facts of this case, the answer is no, Justice O'Connor, because the, the matter that's presented here by the Secretary, her interpretation of the standard, is not based on her rulemaking authority. If it was based on the rulemaking authority, then the Court would apply Chevron and, and could give controlling weight. But what she presents here is not based on rulemaking authority. It's her interpretation presented through litigation positions. And those positions we would maintain. Oh, so your, your answer them. is that you only defer to certain kinds of interpretations, but not to an interpretation developed and presented during the course of litigation. That is, is that correct. Your position? That is correct, Your Honor. 
And do you have authority from this court for that proposition? Yes. Is that clear? Bowen versus Georgetown University makes it very clear that litigation positions are not entitled to Chevron deference. As Justice Kennedy wrote, Chevron simply does not apply to litigation positions. But, but in this case, it was a citation. Secretary took official action citing the company for a violation of the act. This wasn't just an interpretation that was developed in the course of an adjudicative proceeding to defend a statute, to defend a regulation. What you have here, Justice Kennedy, is an ambiguous uh, standard. And the Secretary, in effect, admits that it's ambiguous. And the only way that she is clarifying it is through the litigation positions that she is presenting in court. She clarifies it by the issuance of the citation by the compliance officer and by the arguments of counsel. That is the only way she's clarifying. And we believe under Bowen that those litigation positions are not entitled to deference. Had she said, had this, the standard been an unambiguous, then the question deference would be here for the secretary. But it simply does not apply. The secretary in saying... What was the litigation uh, position involved at Bowen? The litigation position involved the retroactive application of a wage index by the Secretary of uh, Health and Human Services. Right. Defending against the suit against the secretary, right? That's correct. And the question was, uh, the argument of counsel in litigation was the reason for the retroactive application Mm -hmm. of the wage index was because it was a cost adjustment. Mm -hmm. And the court said that that is the first time we've heard that. That's the first expression of the secretary's interpretation. Very much the same we have here. The first time that the Secretary explains what this standard G3 means is by the citation and the arguments of counsel. But there, there, the mere action that the Secretary had taken in Bowen didn't, didn't bespeak that interpretation. Uh, when, when it came to defending itself, the, uh, the Department came up with this interpretation. I thought that's what we meant by a litigating position. But here, when the Secretary brings a citation, you don't have to guess what the basis is. It was cited for violation of this section in particular. That, that is not a litigating position, except to the extent that any, uh, any uh, implementation of the law by the agency is, 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 is a, a litigating position. And that, your position, then, is that the agency can only uh, clarify a regulation by another regulation. Is there anything else, any other way it can clarify the meaning of a regulation? And to be entitled to Chevron deference? Yeah. No. The agency must act. So it, it, it can't clarify a regulation. It can only amend it. To be entitled controlling weight, it would have to act through what the authority that Congress has delegated, which would be rulemaking authority. That does not mean that it cannot present its arguments and that the court or the commission should not give weight to those arguments. The question here is controlling weight. Controlling weight is only when it's acted in its rulemaking capacity. Is this, is this so for all agencies or is this, this just, uh, just OSHA? It would be for all agencies. We believe that is an appropriate application of, of Chevron. And there has been a recent recommendation of the Administrative Conference of the United States but, that agrees with, with our position. But we have a lot of cases deferring to the agency's interpretation of its own regulation. Indeed, some of our cases say that uh, we're even more inclined to defer to, the, to, to an agency's interpretation of its own regulations than we are, are to an agency's interpretation of its statute. And, and we're not referring to its interpretation through an additional regulation. How do you explain all those cases? In those cases, Your Honor, there is, there is confusing language about the controlling weight under Chevron or whether you give considerable deference. And in our, we maintain that in, to be entitled to controlling weight, in the, the ultimate deference, 
the agency should be acting in the capacity that Congress has delegated. And if the agency is doing something less, such as merely offering an interpretation, the regulation didn't mean what she said it does. She says, let me now explain to you what the regulation means. When they offer that kind of interpretation, it may be entitled to some weight, but the Court needs to balance the factors in which that interpretation is made and decide how much weight is given. That, that interpretation may, be, may have so many of the uh, wrappings around it that it looks almost like the, a formal rulemaking. In that case, the weight that the Court would give would be very high. It may approach controlling weight. But our position is controlling weight is for those delegated authorities. So when the FTC uh, prosecutes somebody uh, for a violation of one of its regulations, in a district court, let's say, uh, and, and, and the case comes to a district court, uh, and the FTC's position is reasonable, as to, as to the meaning of that regulation. We would not defer to the FCC, you, you would say. If the action of the FCC is based on the authority that Congress has delegated to it, it would be a Chevron question. No, this is a regulation. It's an FCC regulation that they're proceeding under. The issue is the interpretation of that regulation. And, and what you say is we would give no deference to the FCC. The only way we would give deference to the FCC is if it amended the regulation. But its interpretation of the regulation is entitled to no deference under Chevron. You would give deference to the regulation as an interpretation of its authority under the statute. But not to the FCC's interpretation of the regulation. If they argued in court and gave you their interpretation that added to it, that is not... Not just arguing in court. The citation was based on their interpretation of the regulation. Your Honor... And, and you say we would not give if the citation, If the citation conforms with the standard, and there's no ambiguity in the standard, then, then the agency is going to get controlling weight. But if it's something less, then they are not. If you look at the Occupational Safety and Health Act, Congress makes it very clear the type of authority it placed in the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. The citations issued by the Secretary are only enforceable as final orders of the Commission. The Commission has exclusive authority to impose civil penalties. The Secretary only has the authority to recommend. Under Section 659 of the Act, if a citation is not contested, it becomes a final order of the Commission that is not subject to review by any court or any agency. If it is contested, then the Commission conducts a hearing. That hearing is conducted under the Administrative Procedure Act, and the Commission is given the authority to affirm, modify, or vacate the citation of the Commission. Therefore, Congress has provided the Commission with a full complement of judicatory authority. This is also made clear by the reference to the Administrative Procedure Act. Congress said that the Commission has the authority to adjudicate under the Act. That brings into play the cases decided by this Court as to the authority judicatory agency has. That includes policymaking power. The Secretary here argues that the Commission has no policymaking power. It does not even have the power to interpret an ambiguous standard. That is directly contrary to what Congress said in the Occupational Safety and Health Act, and it's directly contrary to the precedence of this Court establishing what the powers are of a judicatory agency under the Administrative Procedure Act. We believe it is, is clear from the statute and the APA the kind of authority the Commission is to have in this case. If the Court believes it's necessary to look at the legislative history, the legislative history also supports our position. As I said previously, as this matter was being considered by Congress, there were strong concerns presented that placing all of the authority in the Secretary would not gain the confidence of the regulated community necessary to achieve voluntary compliance, necessary to achieve the objectives of the Act. So Congress reached a compromise. 
And that compromise was to place judicatory power in the Commission. The legislative history is, is outlined in, in significant detail in the brief of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, beginning at page 13. But there are two important aspects to highlight. One is the competing interests that were involved and the compromise was reached by Congress. The other is the, the role models, the, the agencies that Congress was looking to in deciding what power should be given to this, this new independent agency, the Commission. And in looking at the competing interests, what Congress said and the compromise that was reached is that in the occupational safety and health area, where it covers such a broad number of industries, there should be significant power, a jugatory power in the Commission to deal with factual settings and factual circumstances. And Congress looked to the FTC and the National Labor Relations Board as the examples under which they decided the authority the Commission should have. Senator Javits, who proposed the amendment creating the Commission, referred specifically to the authority of the FTC when referring to the powers of the Commission. Mr. Font, is it, is it your position that, uh, that uh, OSHRC uh, does not defer to the Secretary with respect to the Secretary's interpretation of the statute as well as the regulations? Suppose a case comes up in which uh, there's no regulation at issue, but just the terms of the statute, and the Secretary has taken a particular interpretation. Does OSHRC defer to the interpretation of the statute? If the Secretary interpreted the statute through a rulemaking as delegated by Congress, it would be binding on the Commission. No, no, not through rulemaking. He brings a citation just under the terms of the statute. There's no rule specifically addressed to it, but he says the statute authorizes this. And the, the only form of the Secretary's interpretation was the citation itself. No, it is not entitled to any controlling weight by the Commission. It would be given weight by the Commission, but not necessarily controlling weight. Not controlling weight. But if the Secretary interpreted the same statute in, in a, an action that would that would come to district court or to the Court of Appeals, the, uh, the third branch of government would defer to the Secretary's interpretation. It's our position, Justice Scalia, that again it would depend on the form that if the, if the Secretary has acted in a fashion authorized by Congress, then the Court should apply Chevron and determine whether it's entitled to controlling deference. If it is in a form that is less than that format delegated by Congress, it is entitled to wait. And that wait will depend on a number of factors, uh, for example, those spelled out in Skidmore. But it is not entitled controlling wait. And, and how much wait is going to depend on those factors, how much consideration was given, the reasoning behind the interpretation. As I said, looking at the legislative history, it supports our position that Congress intended the Commission to have the power to interpret the standards. Therefore, in this case, the Commission has acted based on its delegated authority from Congress. And when you apply the Chevron analysis, that action, the final order, which is subject matter before the Court today, is entitled to controlling weight. The Commission's interpretation of the standard is not arbitrary and capricious and is in accord with the statute. In fact, the Secretary here does not contest that the Commission's interpretation is reasonable. It is therefore entitled to controlling weight. I'd like to turn to the Secretary's position. The Secretary's position here, the interpretation, is nothing more than a litigation position. It was presented by the citation issued by the Compliance Officer and is argued by the Secretary's counsel in court. 
And as I indicated previously, under Bowen, we believe that stands for the proposition that litigation positions are not entitled to controlling weight under Chevron. Well, I, I, I just read Bowen, uh, the part that you're, you're interested in, and it seemed to me the Court's opinion there was talking about kind of uh, justifications offered for a regulation in the course of litigation sustaining it, uh, the, the quotation being that about uh, the counsel for an agency offering a post-hoc justification for it. That really isn't the case here, is it? Yes, it is, Justice Scalia, uh, Justice Rank, Chief Justice Rehnquist. On the face of it, this standard does not require what the Secretary says. The, sec- the gravamen of the offense here that the Secretary alleges is that CFNI did not provide new respirators. There is nothing in G3 that says that new respirators must be provided. That only comes about. That requirement is created by the compliance officer when he issues the citation. But that's done in the context of the exercise of the Secretary's administrative authority. A citation has been issued through the administrative process based on the Secretary's interpretation of the regulation. And we've always said that an administrative construction of the regulation by the Secretary is entitled to great deference, and that's exactly what this is. I will distinguish again, Justice Kennedy, between considerable deference and controlling deference. Our position is that controlling deference, as outlined in Chevron, only applies when the agency is acting under its delegated authority by Congress, in the format delegated by Congress. If it's something less than that, yes, it's entitled to weight, but less weight. And there's a lot of confusion around the word deference. And we're not saying that interpretation is not entitled to some weight. In fact, it should be given to weight by the Commission, and it was. We are arguing that it's not entitled to controlling weight. Mr. Flaught, in, in, in Bowen, try to put it again, I'm not sure you're responding to what seems to be the problem. In Bowen, the official action was simply the, deny, the denial of benefits. That's the, the, uh, the authorized governmental action taken by the agency. And that action didn't necessarily rest on uh, a particular interpretation of the statute. It didn't bespeak anything. It was just the denial of the benefits. Then when litigation comes up, he, he comes up with this theory. That's a litigating position. Here, the official action was the issuance of the citation. That was not neutral. On the face of it, it referred to this section. On the face of it, it necessarily was an official administrative interpretation of the regulation. Don't you see a difference between those two situations as to what's a litigating position and, and what isn't? In, in this situation, Justice Scalia, the only explanation... The only thing that the Secretary has done that places the requirement she is seeking to impose here in this regulation is the arguments for counsel and the compliance officer writing. It is not in the standard itself. It, it is like impo- it's imposing a new requirement that is not there. And I, I view that virtually the same as what was happening in Bowen, is that the Secretary came in litigation and explained, uh, tried to explain, a, a, a basis for retroactively applying the regulation. And this court rejected it. Said, no, we, we won't accept your explanation when it is not the basis for the regulation. In addition to Bowen, this court has made it very clear that to be entitled to controlling weight, a, an agency must act in a form that's delegated by Congress. In Batterton, the court distinguished between deference and the kinds of weights that I've been talking about here. In Batterton, the court said, if it's a delegated authority, it's entitled to controlling weight. 
If it's something less than delegated authority, it may be entitled to weight, but it's, it's different weight. I referred previously to the recommendation of the Administrative Conference of the United States. The Administrative Conference considered precisely this issue in 1989, and in July of 1989 issued a recommendation that says in order for an agency to be entitled to controlling weight under Chevron, it should act in a rulemaking power, a formal adjudication, or in some other form delegated by Congress. If the agency has not acted in that form, it is not entitled to controlling weight. And that's precisely is what the case is. What, do you, what would you say uh, if, uh, would you say we were just, would be dead wrong if we gave uh, some deference to the, uh, to the uh, National Labor Relations Board view of the National Labor Relations Act? Uh, it depends on the, the form, Justice White. Well, here's the, um, they issue a complaint and, and uh, they adjudicate. Uh, and they, they, they present a view of their interpretation of the statute uh, uh, when it's challenged. I thought we, uh, gave, I thought we frequently give, uh, gave deference to the NLRB. National Labor Relations Board was carrying out its delegated authority from Congress to adjudicate cases. In that adjudication, it said what the act meant. Yes, it's entitled Chevron. Well, Deference. I know, but they've never issued a rule in history. Issued in Maybe order. one or two procedural rules, but... But uh, they don't have to get up and have a big rule-making authority, uh, a proceeding to, uh, to uh, announce a, a construction of the statute that, that uh, is entitled to deference. They have been given adjudicatory authority by Congress just the same well, as that's the commission just here. Adjudica- that's, just exa- that's, just the, that's exactly what the secretary did in this case, just took out after uh, somebody to enforce the statute and, 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 uh, and was expressing a... Her view of the statute, uh, the just like the NLRB does when it's... The difference here, Justice White, is that Congress has separated the functions. Congress took the adjudicatory power from the Secretary, and, and all that that entails, took that from the Secretary and placed it in the Commission. So in this case, you have a split, split agency. You, you have split powers, that the Secretary can operate through the rulemaking power, and the Commission can operate through the adjudicatory power. They both have a policy-making function. The Secretary's policy-making function is exercised through making rules. The Commission's policy-making function is exercised through the adjudications. And as Justice Scalia noted in his concurring opinion in Bowen, is that a rule, or excuse me, an order based on adjudication is to determine what the law was. That's precisely what the Commission did here. It determined what the law was. It interpreted what the standard meant. That's its, func- that's its function under the Act, and that's why it should receive controlling weight. What the Secretary is trying to do here is raise the same questions that were raised before Congress in 1970 and were rejected. The Secretary is saying, I want that power. I want all the policy power. The Commission does not have any policy power in its adjudication. That is not what Congress intended, and that is not what Congress said. What Congress said, we are concerned. We will not and we refuse to place all the power in the Secretary. We are going to give the adjudicatory power to the Commission. And that's, that's what the Secretary is trying to take back today. And she's trying to take it back, not, not in a formal rulemaking proceeding. She's trying to make, take it back through the issuance of a compliance order, an order by a compliance officer. He is one of a thousand compliance officers. He issues it and says, this is my interpretation. This is what the standard means. And now the Secretary is bolstering it in court by her arguments of counsel. 
That is not the way she is to operate. That's not the delegated authority by Congress. She is to exercise her policy power through making rules. She, she did make a standard in this case, but it's ambiguous. It didn't say what was intended. Therefore, she tries to explain it by other means. This Court should reject that explanation. It is not entitled to controlling weight under Chevron. The Secretary should not be in, allowed to circumvent the procedural requirements that Congress set out for her to exercise her rulemaking authority. And therefore, we think the judgment or the judgment of the Tenth Circuit should be affirmed. It was correct when it said it would look to the reasonableness of the final order of the Commission. That final order was reasonable and therefore was entitled to controlling weight and entitled to deference over the litigation positions of the Secretary. No further questions, Chief Judge. Thank you, Mr. Fott. Uh, Mr. Sloan, do you have rebuttal? Just a few brief points, Your Honor. First, uh, respondent places great weight repeatedly on the phrase controlling weight as a, as a decisive factor here. Respondent fails to point out that in this Court's consistent decisions on an entity's interpretations of its own regulations, which almost by definition are not embodied in a regulation, the Court has repeatedly said that those interpretations are entitled to controlling weight unless plainly erroneous or inc inconsistent with the regulation. That's been the settled standard that the Court has applied in this category of cases. Secondly, Respondent contends that the Commission was given a policymaking function. There's uh, no evidence of that in the, in the statute or in the legislative history. The contrast between the Commission's role and the role of the NLRB or the Federal Trade Commission could not be more stark, where those entities are specifically given policymaking authority. And as this Court has held in cases like Chenery and Bell Aerospace, the reason that those entities can announce policies in the course of adjudication is precisely because they have the choice of making that policy in other means. They have been given the policy-making authority, and it is that that the Commission lacks here. Third, in terms of just the context of this case, uh, the second uh, very case-specific uh, issue that Respondent repeatedly talks about, uh, it is not true that the only evidence of the Secretary's interpretation is embodied in the citation in this case, even if it were, it would be entitled to deference. As we've pointed out in the reply brief, in January of 1979, the Secretary in the Industrial Hygiene Field Operations Manual had said uh, in interpreting this provision that respirators must fit properly, and in uh, a subsequent interpretation in April 1979, which is Exhibit C11 before the Administrative Law Judge, at page 2, the Secretary again said uh, that referred to this specific provision as a training and fitting standard. In 1980, the Secretary issued another instruction, and that has consistently been the Secretary's interpretation with respect to whether a fit requirement is imposed. If there are no further questions. Thank you, Mr. Sloan. The case is submitted.